Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the second half of our interpreter broadcast this evening uh, with my co-hosts, Kevin Christensen and John Gee. Good evening, Kevin. Good evening, John. Good evening. Yeah, good evening. And uh, for the second hour, of course, we're doing a uh, follow-up on our Come Follow Me presentations from the Interpreter Foundation. And uh, just want to announce that if you are interested, the... Interpreter Foundation sponsored cruise uh, to Turkey is uh, filling up. That'll be in October. And so if you want more information about that, I suggest that you go to Bountiful Travel and look up the Bible tour there and get as much information and sign up if you can, because that's going to be fantastic. There's a lot of the New Testament that took place there, as John was mentioning in our last hour. We also want to remind you that on November 4th and 5th, we're going to have the 6th Matthew B. Brown Temple on Mount Zion seminar, sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation. Uh, keynote speakers will be Wilford Griggs and Margaret Barker and Samuel Zinner. Now, some of those will be virtual presentations. On Friday night, the 4th, Wilford Griggs' presentation about the temple in early Christianity will be um, a virtual one. And then Saturday, you can join virtually or you can attend in person. Uh, just go to the Interpreter Foundation website and look that up. So... Gentlemen, tonight we have the uh, books of Amos and Obadiah. And, uh, you know, Amos, he, he's, he, he's the contemporary with Isaiah, if I've got that right. On the early side. So in some ways, um, if we're looking at prophetic books in the Old Testament, so books written by prophets, after Moses and after Samuel— Amos is the earliest. Earlier than Isaiah. Yeah, he's. they overlap, but they overlap. The end of Amos overlaps the beginning of Isaiah. Okay. So Amos comes early. And, and they're not sure about Obadiah at all. Uh, yeah, Obadiah, we don't know anything about when he lives – other than it's before the destruction of Jerusalem. Yes. Well, it's and actually, after and after he David. talks about the destru- Well, he talks about the destruction of the temple and how Edom kind of stood by, but it's about that time. Yeah. So he's he's less uh, he's harder to pin down than Amos. Mm-hmm. So, Kevin, when we talk about Amos, what what are the things in that book that stand out to you? Well, in my, uh, I got the marking that I put in there in my, when I was on my mission, uh, Amos 3 7, (laughs) surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth a secret to his servants, the prophets. And the other one is uh, about the, behold the day, it's in in. Chapter 8, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, 
But of hearing the words of the Lord, and they shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. So those are the those are the oldest markings that I've got in that chapter. Got a few others since then, but those are the ones that we most know about, and of course those are the ones that the gospel doctrine lesson will focus on too. You know, the the apostasy one reminded me of another project. So in the last hour, we you know we were talking with John about a a project he'd been involved in with the uh, Book of Mormon names, but there was also a project that. I think Farms did several years ago, and you participated, John, on the Great Apostasy. Uh, yeah, well, we so starting in about uh, 2000, uh, we met once a week for about two years. And what they wanted to do was to test the Stephen Robinson's hypothesis that uh, Greek philosophy had, had corrupted the church. So we were systematically reading through um the uh the early church fathers and we had Dan Graham and Jim Seabach who both philosophy professors both specialists in greek philosophy um reading along with us and i can't remember all who was involved because it mm-hmm. it rotated over time it, Noel Reynolds organized it but one of the things that I remember Dan Graham and Jim Seabach saying very clearly is, look, you don't get anything resembling Greek philosophy until maybe Justin Martyr, mid-second century. And by that time, they're already into the apostasy. So Greek philosophy isn't the engine of philosophy, or at least not the initial engine of it. Uh, you mean it, the apostasy? Of the apostasy. It comes in later, and it comes in uh, sort of to try to shore up Christianity after it's already apostatized. And that was... So we made this case in a book that was published by Farms called Early Christians in Disarray. Yeah. And great uh, cover by the brilliant book. Yeah, it was a great cover. It was um, it was a great book. Um, And oddly enough, um, there are people who probably took more um, took more umbrage at uh, Robinson's hypothesis, but they've mainly taken aim at uh, that book. And uh, my own contribution had to deal with um, plain and precious things being taken out and pointing out that the accusation of corruption of the text come from all angles in the second century, and for the most part, our earliest manuscript come from the third. Mm-hmm. So after and in the third century, accusations about corruption have largely died down, and there's still a few of them in the early third century. But after that, they don't accuse people of corrupting the text. But all these corruptions come largely before our manuscripts, and so the manuscripts that we have are don't put us in a good position to see what the manuscripts were like in the first century. Mm-hmm. So, 
But there is a clearly the the famine in the land. Uh, I wanted to go back and and do the Amos three seven and point out, and, and I'm not the first to point this out. Um, I can't remember who has, but multiple people has. When it says that the Lord God doeth nothing, but he revealeth his secret, that secret is um, sod. And this is a Hebrew word that tends to be a reference to a heavenly council that's held where they discuss matters. Yeah, um, Bill Hamlin. Bill Hamlin did, did, did work on it. About um, that for Interpreter, I think. Yes, and uh, mm-hmm. David yep. Bokovoy, I think one of the yes. first article in Interpreter was on this yes, subject. Yes, the Divine Council, yeah. So th- this is what they're talking about there is that he not he revealed this, his secret, but in this case it's his counsel to his servants, the prophet, and what he expect the results of the heavenly council, and that's what's uh, he that's what's given to the prophets to proclaim and and especially if we remember that the term prophet in the old testament it's hebrew navi and comes from a verb meaning to speak or to call forth but if you remember that passage in the pentateuch where the lord says that moses will be like a god and aaron will be his prophet yeah. But the term prophet there is spokesman, and the Greek term for prophet means spokesman. Mm-hmm. So this is a spokesman for God. In this case, the result of the divine counsel that God presides over comes to the prophet, and the prophet announces it to the people. Mm-hmm. And Aaron was the mouthpiece by which that happened. Well, in, in, in Moses' day, Aaron serves as the Navi for Moses, but... In the spokesman, but in in Old Testament terms, the prophet is the navi, the spokesman for God. Yes, and I think that's a, an understanding that fits very comfortably in with the understandings Latter Day Saints have is for prophets. Um, you know, we don't worship the prophet, but he is God's spokesman on earth, and uh, we do would do well to listen to what he tells us. It's always fascinating to me, and. Kevin, I'm I'm sure you. I'm, I'm curious about this, where you're so far away from the Wasatch Front, as you were mentioning earlier. You don't always get in the loop on all of these things. Is it just me, or is is President Nelson's message at a different level, maybe than some of the other prophets? Although every prophet, in my experience, speaks to our time. Yeah, well, one of the things that was most, uh, it remains most amazing was, you know, the conference before uh, the pandemic hit and the kinds of things that were being discussed and prepared in the conferences before that. And we just felt like that, you know, he was setting us up for something that came and then we got hit by this. And and I recently even uh, read an interview where someone was talking about uh, interviewing President Nelson and talking about his process of revelation. And how he talked about there was a talk about you know reading the scriptures and, and writing down in your journal the thoughts that come to your mind uh, as you read the scriptures, as you pray, as you ponder the scriptures, and and the, the between the talk and between what he described, uh, what the interview described as the process of revelation that he reports, uh, it's the same thing. He's he's wanting us to 
do that kind of thing ourselves, you know, to be able to tap into the spirit. And there, um, there are more dramatic instances, you know, that, you know, the, like the, the council vision sods, uh, that John was talking about and that, that Amos is talking about and that there's, you know, lots of references to that that we don't re- recognize as such unless we dip into some of the scholarship. But it, it, it's, a, it's a theme and it's a crucial thing. And it, it of course, resonate, resonates really well with, you know, the, the things that we have in our scriptures, you know, the LDS scriptures. Uh, but it's just, you know, you get into this, the, the deliberations of the council, get the big plan, the big picture that's going on, get the, the whole plan of salvation that's going to be discussed there, and you know that becomes in other parts of the scripture. That's a test for a prophet. This, you know, Jeremiah has that. That's you know that if, if God's taken you into His counsel, He's going to tell you to repent. <laughs> that's one of the Maybe ways. Maybe that's why the people don't want to listen to the prophet. Yeah, they they want someone who's going to tell them, you know, everything's okay. Well, you know, that's what on doing what. That's what Samuel Lamanite says. Is you know, if you if you have somebody that that will tell you the word of the Lord, you're going to persecute him. And if you have somebody who tells you to just go ahead and and uh, do those things you want to do anyway, then you'll give him money and say he's a prophet. The people have itching yeah. ears. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it also f- comes down to when we talk about uh, the famine in the land in Amos 8, uh, verse 11, uh, it says not just a famine of bread or water, but hearing the words of the Lord. Well, the the term there, Shema, means not only to hear, but also to obey. It's a famine of obedience as, mu- well, as well as hearing. we can hear the words of the prophet in numerous ways. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I was traveling during general conference, and I could hear the whole thing, and when a I left one radio station, I could pick up another radio station, or I could put it on my phone, or I could even go back and listen to it on YouTube. There were so many ways I could get the, the talks almost immediately. It was incredible to me. The, the church has done an amazing job. So you think just back a few years, say 10 years ago, when they were first putting them up on YouTube and you, had to, you had to wait it was a till week Wednesday. Well, you had to wait till Wednesday before they came on print, and you'd be sitting here going, "What am I supposed to do between Sunday and Wednesday?" I, I, I I'm well, lost. Well, or they, but it's up almost immediately now. Oh yeah, it's just in, yeah. incredible. In fact, we, um, I'd been flying in on the plane and missed the morning session, and but caught it the next day or the cut the first half of it the next day and streaming it over the phone yeah and 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 well, was and able here's, to listen here's to some another of it. thing we were studying one of the talks from April and I'm embarrassed to say that in reading the talk which I'd listened to a couple of times all of a sudden a footnote pops out and we're talking about it in you know, the elders quorum and, and he says, I don't know who wrote this footnote. And I'm sitting here thinking, uh, elder Christofferson wrote that footnote. It's his footnote. Do we go back and read the talks? Because the talks are footnoted by the brethren themselves. Yeah. 
I mean, uh, you know, I, I listen to the talks and just listen and listen, and then I forget to go back and read them the way we used to when the ensign came every, you know, so often. And uh, I think we need to go back and do that because there's things even in the footnotes, and I'm kicking myself a bit because I always read the footnotes. As, yeah. as, as I was yeah. pointing out to John earlier on the book, we just got – I go through the bibliography and the footnotes first thing before I even read the book, and then by then I pretty much know what's in it. And, and I, um, you know, I check for years. I check Nibley's footnotes. So, yeah, I I go to the footnotes very quickly too. I remember one back in nineteen eighty four, maybe nineteen eighty five. Um, President Nelson mentioned one time. He says. This appears not once in the scriptures, but 84 times. And then if you looked, he footnoted it and had all 84 times listed. Well, thankfully, in his Let God Prevail talk, he said, in my 800 talks, I've talked about Israel 374. Thankfully, he didn't list all of those, although I almost wish he had because that's an important subject. But, Kevin, do you, do you, are you able out there to get that much of the prophet's words? Uh, well, yeah, for our TV, we've got the BYU uh, app or, and also YouTube. So for this conference, we kind of alternated between those. So we were able to, to get all of the sessions of the conference and watch them together. And then, of course, uh, I use LDS.org and the, um, the website frequently in the, in the, when I'm doing my research because it's a convenient way to get the scriptures online amongst other things. And we've got, on our phones, we have the LDS uh, app, which has, you know, the library and the Sunday yep. school lessons and all this other stuff. So, yeah, it's it's astonishing to me how convenient it all is. <laughs> well, for the it's longest like time, this. I have my printed scriptures, and I loved marking them, and I thought, I'm never going to go to my phone. And now I use my phone almost exclusively because of the electronic ability to put notes in it. So I can put an incredible amount of material everywhere, and by using the LDS Tools app, it just synchronizes it. Well, you, you look at it. So all of this, uh, all of this at, for a time back in the day, lived in places where in order to get general conference, well, you had to go. You to had church. to make a trip to the stake center, yes. which could be quite a ways, mm-hmm. and fifty and, miles. Yeah, yeah. It depends on where, where you, you lived were. and and the circumstances. But you had to you had to make a real effort to go to conference, and oftentimes you didn't have time between the sessions to go home. And back. Oh yeah, you'd have a. That was that was a. Oh yeah, so potlucks, those were great. Yeah, so um, the convenience of it now. Um, I've listened to General Conference um, on occasion live in Europe, and it used to be in in Europe. I remember one time we went. We were in May, and this was years and years ago, and we were visiting a ward in Germany, and what they were doing was listening to the tapes that they'd just gotten from mm-hmm. 
general conference the month the month before, before yeah. they had finally got the tapes, and so for priesthood meeting, it was listening to as many talks as they could fit in, and yeah. and now just how how much more available it is. Uh, we're not having. We don't have a famine in of, hearing of the being word of the Lord, Lord, but we might have a famine. I was going to say, yeah, and, do, do you feel that it. where you are, Kevin, that, that really the famine is in the obedience of the word? Uh, yeah, there's that. There's Well, there's the famous saying from you know Isaiah about having ears but you can't hear. And you talk about you know, there's more to hearing. And I think, uh, like Lewis Midgley wrote some really good articles on remembrance and that that was a lot more active than just having it in mind. It's you know, demonstrated through action. So if, if we've got eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to turn, then that should be an active demonstration. It's, you know, it's a, it's a church not of you know nodding silently in agreement, but it's a church of wholehearted, you know, embracing this whole covenant lifestyle and community uh, commitment and, and Bearing one another's burdens and that, that they may be light, and, and you know, seeking and feasting upon the words of Christ every chance we can, we get, and, and acting out. So it's it's not a passive thing for us. It should be a demonstration. So, how do we tie the two together? The counsel, the divine counsel through the word of the prophet, and then we hear it. But then we've got a famine in obedience. How can we? How can we overcome that? Well, we got or to do it, it on an, in an individual basis. And I think this is one of the things that the brethren have been saying about conference in in recent years. Don't and, and it makes sense now. They say don't take notes about what's said because you know in a couple of days you can have the transcripts. You can go back and listen to it. Don't take notes on what is said. Take notes on the inspiration you get. So, and you can sit through um, a talk and not get any inspiration. And you get another talk and you get this, I really need to do X. I really need to change how I deal with that. And so you're... They say, take notes on that. Take notes on the promptings you receive. And being able to take notes on them and then act on them gives us a way to improve that famine of obedience because that will tell us the things that we need to work on. You know, there there may be something in – there may be something in conference, a talk, that you, th- you say, well, I actually am doing okay on that. But you won't be able to say that for all of them. And the Holy Ghost can let you know which is the one you need to work on and uh, and more. And, and so taking notes on that and, and mm-hmm. acting on it, that's – so then acting on it is the hard thing. Yeah. Are there are there things that we can do, Kevin and John, that will help us transfer that to others? I mean, that that's a good point, John, where we we should be feeling the spirit as opposed to worrying about the notes because they'll be available to us in multiple forms. But 
how do we transfer that to others through the missionary effort or through something else? Is there is there something that we can do specifically that will help us do that? Well, we're told specifically to let our light so shine before men, you know, that they can see our good works and rejoice. And that's really all, you know, we can work through persuasion and example and and participation in, in, our, in our individual presence and in our individual, you know, taking as much light as we can into ourselves and just let our demonstration on our love of the gospel um, show up so that other people see it. You know, it's a, and that can be uh, you know, just to children. You know, it, it affected me as a child that when conference came around, you know, TVs and the radios went on in every room in the house. You could hear conference, you know, on conference, uh, conference Sundays twice a year. And so I, and I got familiar with the names and the, you know, the manner of speaking of, of the, all of the apostles and a lot of the 70s in those days and, and just could see the reverence that my parents had for that. And that so that sets an example for us. And so as we get older, we're, you know, we, we took an interest. We got our own testimonies. We went on missions. We married in the temple. We, we, and so I can think of, uh, I, I think about when I went to my grandma's funeral. You know, she was, uh, she lived in Cleveland, Utah. It's just a tiny little town you know, in, uh, in Emory County. And, uh, but yet I could look at my grandma's influence as quite literally having gone around the world through her children and her grandchildren and her great grandchildren. And then it's, this is continuing on just her. We could tell that she loved the gospel and just as an individual, wherever a person is, whatever they're doing, you know, I mean, she worked, uh, she worked in the school kitchen, and she worked at the post office in this little teeny town. And, and you know, she was widowed for a long time when you know Grandpa Harry uh, died. And but yet, just where she was, living the gospel, she had an influence that clearly, you know, went with all of those that she affected. So, just wherever we are, we do have the opportunity to do that. And our love of the gospel will make a difference because we are in a society and people are going to see us. Yeah, I think also we shouldn't... So when we're talking about receiving revelation, sometimes the revelation you receive in the middle of conference is, I need to talk to so-and-so. And that allows... And if you follow through on that, that allows that influence to expand and to impact someone else's life. And uh, the Brethren have talked about this for years, about the need to to just talk to people, and that if you talk with them and you let the— and you're listening to the Spirit at all, it can prompt you what to say— and you don't know the influence that that can have. Um, with a, a little bit of time here, we wanted to move into some of the other parts of Isaiah, maybe some of, or of Amos, some of the lesser-known ones. Um, one of the things that I think is telling here is in Amos 7. So Amos is going up into the northern 
kingdom of Israel. And he, uh, and they complain about him because they, uh, so it says that Amaziah the priest sent, sent to the king of Israel saying, uh, we've got Amos and he's a problem and the land is not able to bear all his words. And he's prophesying evil against this. And and he tells him, you need to go back to Ju- Judah and, and prophesy there. Um, but this is, you know, but we don't recognize, you can be a prophet down in, in Judah. And Amos's response was, um, I wasn't a prophet. I wasn't a son of a prophet. Uh, I was a herdsman, and the Lord said, prophesy against Israel. And and so he prophesies even more evil against Israel. Um, So, Kevin, do you see that sort of um, courage? Or you know, some people might call it foolhardiness. Do you see that sort of courage today, where people are, somebody's willing to take a stand for the church and for the word of the Lord, um, where it's not popular? Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I think clearly, like, with something like the, the proclamation on the family, you know, that gets brought up as something that's saying this, these are our standards and, and we are speaking in the name of the Lord for this. Just, and just when, uh, some of the testimonies in conference, uh, you know, about speaking to kings, literally speaking to kings and sharing the testimony of the Book of Mormon, you know, in situations, there are a couple of talks, uh, where that kind of experience came out and it was, and it was done, um, in plain humility, you could tell that there was a certain amount of insecurity and in being prodded by the Spirit and just saying, okay, I'm not going to do this because I really want to, but because I feel that the Spirit is prompting me to do this, and I've learned to obey the Spirit. And to see that it, for them, it becomes a positive experience. And so I think for each of us, uh, when we look at the amount of courage that it takes, say, for someone like Amos, or if we look at the Book of Mormon, especially someone like Abinadi, when things are going to go south very quickly for him. But uh, there's the great uh, passage in Jeremiah where Jeremiah talks about he, he, you know, that he's he says that he he wanted to to be quiet, but he says that the Lord, the Spirit of God, was like a fire in my bones, and I could not forbear. I mean, there's that that sense sometimes where we have to speak. We have to say something. We have to, you know, whether that's just uh, raising our hands to say something or extending our hand to lift someone. You know, it can be the same kind of courage, the same you know, willingness to stand up and, and you know answer the questions. You know, just there was a, one of the talks a person was you know went to a new school and somebody said, "Are you a Mormon?" And yep. To be able to do that sometimes, uh, to, to be able to, to stand up and be counted, to be able to, to say, yeah, these are my standards, this is my church, this is my testimony. Yes, I really believe this stuff. You know, I, I think Daniel Peterson tells the story of, you know, at a 
some some people and they're asking him about LDS beliefs and says this is believed. You know, this incredulity about some of it. I had a, a guy in California once said to me, uh, "How can you be a Mormon and intellectual?" Or in a, another one who had you know, had a faith crisis and left the church, he said, "How can you know what you know and believe what you believe?" You know, and I think those are very good questions, but uh, it's to be able to answer them and to be willing to answer them in a in as kind and loving way as as possible. It's our opportunities to do this to to meet the moment, whether it's a large moment or a small one, I think that's that's what God really wants us to do, is to just meet the moment with faith. And um, I think of uh, a blog post that you wrote <laughs> that I really liked, where you talked about standing as witnesses of Christ at all times and all places and all things, instead of not some places and sometimes and some things, but all of them. You know, and that's that's something that we... That, uh, we've been asked to do to, you know that's our baptism our taking that his name upon ourselves and acting as his representatives having the courage to do that is kind of why we're here well okay so that's and these are all really good points um so the question that kind of comes up is uh i'm sure there are many of our listeners who are thinking yeah, this is great. I'm glad somebody can do this, but I could never do that. How do you get the courage to do something like what Amos did? How do you get to that point? You know, because a lot of people are shy. They, you know, about half of them are introverts. Uh, they don't particularly like talking to strangers. Um, and, you know, some of them are really concerned, as Elder Maxwell says, about being uh, thrust out of the secular synagogue. Uh, so, how do we get the the cur develop that courage that Amos has? What if you don't feel like you've got that fire in the bones from Jeremiah? How do you develop it? Well, we look at role models a lot of times. It's just you look at someone who does, and, and you, you look at another life where this plays out. You know, you read the story of Amos. You read the story of Joseph Smith. You, you, read, you listen to the talks and conference where these people talk about their experience in very personal and specific terms about how they were in a situation that was thrust upon them where they were invited to stand up and be counted, to be able to say, yes, I'm LDS, yes, I believe these things. Uh, yes, I have this testimony. And to have those stories in mind as models. So instead of the, the model being, well, I'm just going to keep a low, pro low profile and try not to attract any attention to myself, or I'm just kind of trying to blend in with the crowd, but, you know, to think of, of, you know, this is part of the hero's journey. You know, the, uh, the heroes are those who face their fears. And if we have a fear of standing up and be counted, well, that's, then we're called upon to, to be heroes. And uh, villains, uh, Joseph Campbell pointed this out, that villains nurture their resentments. Heroes face their fears. Villains nurture their resentments. That makes all the difference. And, and to, to simply to stand up in a situation that's been called for, um, you know, we, we had 
you know, the few months ago we had, you know, the situation where someone who might not have been expected to do something at all brave, uh, we saw on television saying, I don't need a ticket, I need ammunition. And how that inspired you know, his nation to defend themselves against a, what looked like it was going to be a cakewalk for an invasion. But just, just someone rising to, the, to a moment, and it doesn't have to be a small moment. You know, Again, those stories in conference, these, these are just people saying, here I was doing this thing that... Uh, you know, while I was away at school or I was doing my job as a member of the church, I was in just whatever situation they happened to be, they had an opportunity to simply respond with the testimony. And if we have those stories in our mind, you know, like they, they sang in Prita, and the same song they sing in primary, I will go, I will do. You know, and we look at these examples, we, we read the stories of the prophets and of Joseph Smith and of the pioneers rising to an occasion and meeting a moment, and then seeing the, the consequences that come from it. I think of the passage early on in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord is talking to this very, very small group of saints. Let no one count these as small things, for there is much in futurity that depends on them. And it can just be those small things where you're prepared in that moment. And each successful experience is going to give you more courage and everyone who sees that will, can gain courage from it. So it's a thing that can be contagious, you know, in a positive way. It can be something that spreads uh, just through these little efforts that we make that, that someone else says, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Or I saw him do it. I want to do that. I want to be that kind of person who can do that, who can stand up and who can, who can say, yes, I'm LDS. Yes, I believe in Christ. Yes. I'm here to lend a hand. Yes, I'm here to, to make, you know, this, you know, speak out on this issue. Um, or here just to, to be in support of someone. Yeah, I, I heard a, 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 well, uh, I heard a good story on that, but I realized that it's probably not, uh, yeah. I'm, I haven't gotten permission to share it, so I'm, I will have to save that for another time. But when you mentioned, you know, talking about like Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and all of that, uh, uh, not too long ago, I read a book on the, the standard book that all the screenwriters follow. And one of the things that uh, the person said is that the hero um uh, until the hero actually acts, it's all just set up. And that one of the things that makes the hero is that they actually make an active decision and act, make a decision and act on it that takes them out of the situation that was before and launches them on whatever character arc they're on. But that applies to all of us as well. Um, if we're, if we're just passively floating through on whatever tide we're on uh, and not acting, then we haven't yet we haven't yet become the protagonist of our own story. And so that you have to do something that you may not be you may not feel ready for. 
uh, you may not feel qualified for, uh, but you do it anyway. And I remember one thing that uh, Elder Maxwell talking about new converts is, you know, they say they're, they feel inadequate. He says, and you can let them know that the sense of inadequacy never goes away. Um, and as an apostle, well, at the time he wasn't even an apostle yet, but uh, I've also heard members of the First Presidency say much the same thing, is we don't have to wait until we feel adequate for the task that we've been given before we act. Uh, because if we do, we'll never act. So um, I was also looking at uh, some passages in in Amos 5 um, where the Lord uh, tells them uh, this is looking at uh, verse 12. I know your manifold transgression, your mighty sins, and they afflict the just and um, tells them that in verse 14 that they should seek good and not evil that ye may live. And so the Lord God of hosts will be with you. Uh, hate the evil, love the good, and establish judgment in the gates. Uh, and it may be that the Lord of hosts will be gracious to those who are left, to the remnant of Joseph. Um, so what are your thoughts on how to seek good and not evil? Um, well, I think about the passages about hungering and thirsting after righteousness on one hand, and uh, Abraham the book of Abraham, starting out, I, Abraham, you know, wanting to be a greater follower of righteousness. And there's that, it, it's hungering and thirsting, it's that, you know, getting an appetite for it and liking the taste and wanting to fill something in our life with more of the good. There's, the, you know, the story of uh, Lehi when he tastes the fruit of the tree of life and he, it's delicious to him and, and he wants to share it immediately and then there's that so not only seeking the good but sharing the, uh, the good um, and it's uh, that he may live and so the Lord of hosts shall be with you as you have spoken there's that you know wanting to do good because you know, to follow the example of Christ so that we can get, get close to him as you know Benjamin saying how knoweth the master he hath not served, you know, to, to do these things, to think in terms of, of being part of the good thing. You know, there's a, a really chilling passage in Isaiah where it, he talks about he that departeth from evil become must become a prey, you know, that, which is describing a dog-eat-dog society where everyone's out for themselves. And, you know, the, we have depictions of that kind of society where, you know, everyone is divided against everybody else and everyone sleeps on their swords and uh, that kind of society, then it, it becomes a nightmare. And it's the opposite of a Zion society where people are looking out for each other and caring for each other. But in a situation where, you know, it's not totally one way or the other, where we have a choice and we, we can, we want to pick what kind of society, what kind of person do we want to be? And, and 
well, then how do I do good? You know, that, that question is, you know, it's just, I don't know everything. I, I'm, I'm not smart. I'm not a prophet. What can I do? And so I, I want to seek after those who do shine with that light and learn what I can from them and take it into my life and then practice it and then see what happens in my life as I practice it. Now, this is Alma talking to Corianne you know, about restoration, and he's speaking from experience. You know, you do good things, and good things will, will you know, eventually in, in due time return to you, and you do bad things, and eventually in due time they'll come back. So the word restoration more fully condemneth the sinner, you know, that he says. So all of this kind of information and examples and insight where we look at what's good, where we, you know, reading the stories in the scriptures, reading about the hero's journey in Joseph Campbell, reading about, you know, the, this call to adventure that happens in those stories. And also there's there's always a part called the refusal of the call. You know, there's a part where, uh, in like uh, when uh, Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan Kenobi says, Luke, come with me and, you know, to Alderaan and learn the ways of the forest. And he says, I can't, I've got this life here. You know, so at times, in a lot of the stories, there, there's this initial... I can't let my life get disrupted that way. But at some point, we make the choice. You know, we 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 put in our papers for a mission. We find ourselves, oh, I'm going to England. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And I leave the country, and there I am. And then I get out on the streets in England, and I realize I'm not here by myself. <laughs> Basically, just me and my companion were pretending to be missionaries. That, you know, it's what my wife Shauna said when she got to France. Here we are pretending to be missionaries, but. So we act the part for a while, and we 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 look at our, look up to our companion, and so we go here, we say this, we do this, and it's a bit scary, but we get better at it, and then we find ourselves in a situation where we've got a you know a new a new missionary to, to train, and we've got responsibility, so we've got something to live up to, and we take some courage from that. So it's it's a process that we all go through. This this business about seeking the good. And seeking not to do evil, it's, you know, we learn from our mistakes. We, you know, the, you know, the count in the Pearl of Great Price, we taste the bitter and the sweet, and we learn to treasure what is sweet and good, and we learn to avoid the other. You know, that's, that's this process of life, is learning, repenting, continuous repentance every day. Well, I think President Nelson addressed that a little bit in conference. He was quoting President Benson and said, those who turn their life over to the Lord will find that he can make more of it than they can. Um, yes. So that gives us a, 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 a process of turning over the Lord and watching and see what he makes of our life, which doesn't always mean it's going to be easy. But um, yeah. So a little earlier in Amos 5, um, he talks about uh those who turn judgment to wormwood who leave righteousness in the earth and and they he has this says this line in verse 10 that seems to respond so much to people of you know both political persuasions in at least in America but is also more widespread than that they hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Where they don't want to hear, where people don't want to hear uh, what's 
and they don't want to be corrected and certainly don't want to be righteous. Um, right. They'd rather be self-righteous. Uh, so um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's uh, that's an image that recurs in the scriptures in various places about uh, the one that reproveth in the gate they hate him. That's yeah, that's that, well. When I grew up, when I was you know very young kid, one of the books in the house is Profiles and Courage, and uh, it was you know there's one of the stories in there is about Alexander Donathan, you know, defending Joseph Smith when the other people wanted to kill him, you know, and and, and the point is is people that were rising to an occasion, you know, to, to do what is right or do what is easy. And it would be easy to go along with the pressure, but with you do what is right, one of the things that does is that exposes the people who are uh, just going with the flow, doing what's easy, doing what's selfish, doing what's easy. It exposes them for what they are, and it's it's and that's shaming them in a way. Just to stand up and do the right thing, it's exposing the wrong for what it is in public. And there are people who really, really hate that because they just want things to go on the way they are. So it does take courage. And it it does, you know, there's a willingness, you know, if it's the right thing to do, to be a Benedite. You know, you, know, you stand up and you say the right thing. There's, you know, Jeremiah at times when, you know, he's he had a very difficult life in ministry. And uh, Lehi does when, when he goes up and, uh, Joseph Smith does. Sam Smith goes on this mission, and it's hard, and he gets rejected everywhere he goes, and he comes back saying, nobody wants the books. And he felt like a failure. But and and yet you look felt, at people like Brigham Young, who came in from yeah. that initial tour where he was only able to sell one book. Yeah. But it was just, you know, the one book makes a difference. And so that it can be just that one moment, just that one person to stand up uh, this, this, um, these, uh, um, Gerard's, uh, books on, on the, the cycles of violence, and he talks about the importance of, you know, the one who casts the first stone, or the one who, is, is to, he sets the example for the others, and sometimes the person can set an example of unrighteousness that then other people will follow, that he, you know, he, uh, there are people out there who give other people permission, public example, that you can be this much of a louse and this much of a despicable person, this selfish and this corrupt, because everybody's doing it and everybody's corrupt and everybody's out for themselves. So what's you know? Let's not pretend otherwise. There's there's that element out there, but to stand, President Hinckley's saying, stand for something, stand up and be counted, stand up for a principle and do it in public because it's important, because it's hard. That's something that other people need, and it sometimes we, we need to see that in ourselves to be able to look in the mirror and say, you know, I may not be perfect, but that day I did the right thing. On this occasion, I did speak up on, you know, whether it's speaking up, speaking out, or reaching out. Any of those things can take a degree of courage. And that's what Jesus wants us to do, because that is what he did. Okay, well, we have just a, a few minutes left. Do you have any particular thoughts about Amos that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Just uh, when we think of that verse that we always use, 
surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret. Just that we see more in that, that we see that it's a reference to the Grand Council and the whole plan of salvation, and the thing that is at the center of what makes us distinct. But there it is, and that's, that there's more in that, that that can be, that's a, that's a window into heaven. (laughs) And, and if we can take the treasure that's there and, and appreciate the depth and wealth of what we have in this restoration of the gospel. Well, I, one of the things I, I think about with, with Amos is that if you look at what he says about his biography, he was what most people would consider a nobody. He doesn't come yeah. from he doesn't come from a uh, some sort of exalted ancestry, uh, other than you know, generic children of Israel, um, and yet the Lord is able to take him and make something out of him that we're reading him more than two thousand years later, uh, and closer to three, that we're still reading about him. Uh, that the Lord was able to make something of him because he was willing to to do what the Lord asked him to do. Um, He wasn't uh, somebody passed on to me recently. You know, the Lord, actually this was in the the interpreter 10th anniversary uh, meeting, the Lord doesn't need us to be popular. He needs us to do his will. And that's what Amos was had done, and that's why all these years later uh, we're still studying him and still finding things of value in what he told people many, many years ago. And we're uh, that's one of the, the great things that we get to study about people like Amos uh, in Come Follow Me. Uh, much later, uh, or, you know, every four years we get to study somebody like Amos and that we're constantly looking back at the scriptures that give us uh, an enlarged view of things. Um, well, for um, for Terry Hutchison and uh, Kevin Christensen, this is John Gee, uh, and we're sign off for Interpreter Radio, and thank you so much for joining us.